There was a desert wind blowing that night. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that follows the bad moon and whips at your eyes when you try to look up at it. The wolves were out and howling. That ritual going on next door could be for anything. Magic is high with the moon, and the chanting could be for healing, but it could also be for hurting. You see strange things on nights like that. You can even look an eldritch god in the eye. That's exactly what I was doing. I was looking at one, rip a guy apart. I'd tell you which one, but I can't pronounce its name. everybody. I'm Mark D, and I want to suck your blood. That catchphrase was sent in by Dr. Acula. They may be a doctor, but they're no Superman. Welcome to November. I think that I need to, uh, to do this detective thing myself to make it official. And uh, I'm a little sick, so it's going to be a little more gravelly than normal. She walked in, like the first of November, scaring off summer with a cool air, the promise of mystery, and great yams. Anyway, let's cast a deadly spell. From the producer of Aliens and Terminator 2, L.A. in 1948. How is it? Bad. It's always bad. Something's coming, something ugly. Everyone wanted power. I'll be in my hands by Thursday. I'm attending a conference, and this volume is the key to my presentation. A conference that starts at midnight? Everyone wanted control. It's in the book. All right here. The promise, power, and the price. What price? You're going to be dead, Lovecraft. And I'm going to be on top of the world. I should settle things once and for all about who was smart and who was a chump. And everyone used magic. Black magic. Necronomicon. Must be some book. Except Detective Lovecraft. Damn it, Phil, everybody's got a compromise. That's what I keep hearing. Then what makes you so special? He's the right guy. I'm serious. And why are you wearing that hat? But it's the wrong time. Someone's throwing lesser demons at you. You don't even carry a rabbit's foot. I can handle it. Well, I'm not worried about you, Phil. I'm worried about the people who might get in the way. He's got 48 hours to save the world. Or what's left of it. Phil, nothing in life's as funny as you think. Fred Ward. My collar may be a little frayed. Maybe I need a shoe shine. Nobody's got a mortgage on my soul. I own it. Free and clear. Cast a deadly spell. The critics are mesmerized about Cast a Deadly Spell. Imagine who framed Roger Rabbit with witches and zombies instead of tunes, and you've got a great way to spend an evening. Cast a Deadly Spell is sheer entertainment and is the newest addition to HBO Video's Crowd Pleasers program, the program that stands behind new rentals with strong retailer awareness and a customer satisfaction guarantee. 20,000 retailers will receive exciting POP, including rolled posters and a full-length screening copy. Consumers receive a maximum rebate of $2 directly from HBO Video if they are not thoroughly entertained by this wildly successful HBO original movie. 
spell works magic. And it's going to work its magic on you. Only from HBO Video. A little out of the ordinary for the pod. But actually becoming a weird habit for me. Cast the Deadly Spell was a TV movie that just kind of hung around. Produced by HBO on an estimate $6 million budget. It was released September 7th. 1991, and has a runtime of an hour and 36 minutes. It's sitting at 58% on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, 6.5 on IMDb. To clarify, by TV movie, I, I mean it's an HBO movie, right? HBO did not have the prestige in 1993 that it does now. But it does have some blood and violence, some gore, as well as the implication of sex even statutory rape in most states, all states. I don't know what the, the laws are now. They were, they were different for a while. So, and there's a huge Eldritch God or some shit, I guess at this point, some background might be helpful. The main character of the movie is named Harry Philip Lovecraft, Harry, Phil and Lovecraft is how you'll hear him addressed. This is not an accident. It's difficult to explain to someone how the life of the writer, H.P. Lovecraft, how his life went, uh, because, well, you know, frankly, it's, it's strange. It is unusual for our times, but I'll, I'll give it a, a little bit of a shot. I'll give it a go, if you will. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was a writer in the 1920s and 30s who popped off with these kind of sci-fi horror short stories. And novellas, to be fair, and novellas. He was a rich white kid whose family wealth kind of went away and he became famous for writing stories about unknowable existential cosmic horrors that defy the very capacity of understanding that our human brains and senses might afford them that break the barriers of physics, of science, of the universe as we know it. Some heavy shit. He was also a racist. He's a very racist guy. And cleverly, he had uh, written the N-word into one of the, the cast of old ones, is what he called them, or eldritch super god beings. And uh, the name comes up in the climax of this movie, but through some clever... Uh, pronunciation trickery. It's sidestepped. It's avoided. Everybody's happy. They also, you know, could have uh, just left that one out. But, uh, I, you know, I guess there's, there's time for that later, maybe. Or not. I don't know if I'll get to it. Honestly, I'm... This is actually my second time trying to record this episode. The first time I tried an experimental uh, process. I, I, will, I will say it's... Uh, to, the specificity would be pedantic, but it did not. It sounded much worse than however good or bad this sounds right now. Again, I'm sick. Please forgive me. Okay, cosmic beings. Outside outside space and time. Outside of understanding. Perhaps metaphors, right? Metaphors. I'm big on metaphors. I like me a metaphor. I'll fuck a metaphor, if you know what I mean. Um... Perhaps a metaphor for the unknowability 
the inscrutability of, of life, the path of life, the unknowability of other people. You never truly know anyone else. We are, and this is maybe pessimistic, and I, I both think this way and don't. Personally, this is very personal. Uh, I, I think this way, but I also don't. But we never truly know anyone, right? You don't. You really don't. As, as much as you think you do, you don't. And anyone can let you down at any point in time, and you just kind of have to... You kind of have to pick and choose that. And that is where the scariness of interpersonal relationships come into play, and, and romantic and otherwise. Your friends, your family, even. So... Yeah, I think that uh, one Howard Phillips Lovecraft kind of had a struggle with that. You know, one one has to wonder: or was it struggle with the ladies, or was it struggle with the idea of sex or sexuality in general? Was it something else? A lot to Monday morning quarterback here. Not much to say about it. I guess I don't have any really uh, researched evidence here that I I, I won't present. Right. So let me get on with it. Um, so these stories could have been metaphors, and I like that idea. And then he, he wrote a bunch of them. He wrote a bunch of these short stories rooted in the occult, which, you know, also at the time had a bit more play. And uh, he had a bunch of these with a whole pantheon of old ones and eldritch gods and outsiders and just fucking bullshit. And they were, um, they were pulps, basically. The short story magazines would pick them up, uh, specifically one called Weird Tales would pick those up, would gather them up and print them off. Occasionally for the longer ones, they would be serialized, like the novellas, and they would be sold at newsstands. You know, I get that this is a wildly different business model than what we have now, which is why, why I'm mentioning it. I guess the closest modern analog to it would be a zine collected works by various artists published periodically online. But a lot of this stuff, despite Lovecraft the author being a, a garbage person himself, a lot of his work is very cool. The way that he tells the stories, the pacing, the structure, the subject matter, the whole night. It, it, was, it was just rad. It, it really was. He inspired just a metric uh, fuck ton of media that came after him honestly there were uh, genre movies like there was the Call of Cthulhu silent movie that came out in 2007 that was very good very very good and um, if you have to pay a few bucks to see it pay a few bucks to see it it's worth it I promise there was uh, Call of Cthulhu Dark Corners of the Earth which was a I think PC, Xbox 360, and maybe PS3 game uh, published by Bethesda. I don't remember who actually, which studio worked on it, but it was buggy as shit. So it definitely felt like a Bethesda game. And that was also a very cool game. It had some really interesting notions at the time. It didn't have a HUD or a heads-up display. You kind of had to infer the status of your character and the status of your weapon and things like that based on where you've been and... Uh, and by looking at your menu. But it, uh, it it really did sell a lot of the feeling of those stories, specifically the Shadow over Innsmouth 
story really well from what I remember. I didn't finish the game. It bugged out while I was pretty late in the game and my save game just never could load after that. So I haven't finished it. There is a Call of Cthulhu tabletop RPG and that is very cool. And, you know, I guess content warning, there's an insanity meter and, you know, uh, that might be uh, dismissive or trivial for some folks and apologies, I didn't think of it, but that concept played a lot into the story and the mythos itself. So that is how that game kind of manages things. And you take uh, two points of insanity and even dark corners of the earth had that a little bit where if you saw like really fucked up stuff, you could like essentially go insane. Really the limits of, of the human mind were always in question in these Lovecraftian kind of constructs. There was a 2018 movie starring Nicolas Cage called The Color Out of Space. I have the movie. I bought the movie. I've seen the 4K UHD. It's really cool. It is actually a cool movie. It is interesting. It is about family. It is about systemic relationships is what I what I read between the lines. Again, a metaphor. This movie, which is different perhaps from the metaphor of the, of the story itself. But there's a lot to to mine here, a lot of material to go through in terms of how we interpret it. But there's also less direct influences. There aren't direct adaptations, but maybe influences like there's the, the game series of Penumbra. There are a ton in, in movies and TV. Anything with a giant portal with tentacles that comes out of it, anything with giant tentacles is, is very Lovecraft-inspired. You know, hit points, Lovecraft even had a a, a club for weird stories, uh, the weird tales folks. And, um, you know, the one that always comes to mind is, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, who had a whole other spinoff uh, of the Hyperborean uh, cycle or whatever. And, uh, there's another dude, I think his name might've been Robert Block. And, uh, they, they were all just, uh, nerding out, writing each other letters and, uh, writing weird stories. And that was cool. It was cool, except for the, you know, racism. But there's an author that I like, Austin Grossman, who who worked in games, and he worked on several games that I really enjoy. He worked, I believe, for uh, Ion Storm. And uh, anyway, long story short, he wrote a book called Crooked, or I think it's called Crooked. It is spelled crooked, but I think it's called Crooked because it's about uh, Richard Nixon and how the the presidency was this kind of stewardship of eldritch magic and it was really interesting and really cool and really fun it was kind of like an abraham lincoln vampire slayer thing or a pride and prejudice and zombies but with cthulhu so the natural progression of things i don't know that that book hit very well i get the vibe that it didn't but i'll just i'll take a, a second right here to do an advertisement for Austin Grossman. I've read three of his books. I've read in, uh, I've read soon. I will be invincible. You a novel or just you as, as far as I'm concerned, it's just called you Y O U and crooked. And I find his work to be delightful. I find it to be Stevensonian. If that's a word, um, to be like Neil Stevenson, but not uh, aping Neil Stevenson, just inspired by, which Neil Stevenson is an incredibly inspiring writer, 
has inspired me to essentially change my life and uh, pursue the profession that I'm in now, which is clearly not podcasting. So check out Austin Grossman's book if you're, or books, I should say, if you're just up for anything, if you just want to fuck around and find out, right? And the description for you, I will tell you this, the description for you does not communicate the experience of reading the book. It is a synopsis in the basest, basest level. But anyway, probably most recently, and I say most recently because I'm kind of taking in the novel and the uh, HBO prestige television series, the most notable and, and recent adaptation is called Lovecraft Country. And interestingly enough, Lovecraft Country was canceled after one season. I definitely got a vibe from that show. It swung, it swung for every fence and it was up for a lot of awards. It received a lot of recognition. It tackled uh, really head on, just violently tackled a lot of themes and, and subjects that were probably perceived to be too controversial. And I use quotation figures around that because I do think that the subject matter tackled by the book and the show deserves to be discussed in that way. And I admire them both for doing what they did. I think that the show took bigger swings and took some really interesting departures from the novel. I don't know that all of them were better, but some were. A couple were, but it took uh, several episodes for those to pay off. So, um, you know, that's just my personal opinion. There are obviously other people who have uh, different opinions, different uh, takes, as the kids say, on it. There's uh, the third best Lovecraft Country podcast on the internet that's called Boars, Gores, and Swords. I think Boars, Gore, and Swords. And like Boars, like Boring, right? Or is it Boars, like Pigs? Uh, boars, Gores, and Swords. It's just, uh, I'm just going to check that out and I'm going to confirm with you how to spell that. It's Boars, like Pigs. So B-O-R-B-O-A-R-S, gore and swords. And um, I believe that's a reference to uh, either a, a, a novel or some type of critique on media, uh, but they do, they do a lot of media stuff. And they really had a good run on Lovecraft Country. And I don't agree with them on, on everything, but it was definitely fun to listen to. So check that out. That's uh, Red Scott and Ivan Hernandez, Hernandez, who are uh, to either stand up currently or former stand up. It, it all depends. And uh, no judgment here. Uh, comedians who are just kind of making their way through through life, making their way downtown, if you will. And uh, very fun, very fun podcast. Check that out. Their run on Lovecraft Country was inspired, I think. And uh, they have a lot of inspired runs after that. But yeah, these are, are subjects that I thought should be tackled. And um, they were. And it was all framed with this kind of otherworldliness. They, in good uh, science fiction practice, used that otherworldliness to, f to reframe our worldliness, right? And you might have to do some reading when you read those because there's a lot of stuff that, hey, maybe you did not learn in school. Uh, I did not learn a lot of that in school. I had to figure it out 
reading the book and watching the show. You know, this isn't a podcast for that, but I, I will say that, you know, love it or hate it, you, you still might learn something from it. Uh, so go for it. I recommend it either way. At the very least, you get to see Jonathan Majors, who is just uh, the world's foremost jacked nerd. Even after that digression, H.P. Lovecraft was hugely influential in fiction and in comic books like uh, Watchmen, even with a weird tentacle vagina monster, the book, and then subsequently the movie that was the ape of the book that minimized the ending, and then the show that was the follow-up to the book, but not the movie, which they also talked about on Borg's Gords and Sword, which I absolutely loved. But there is, um, there is this world-building that is in common with all of these adaptations. There is this magic and mystical and cosmicness to it. There's there's a whole crew, there's a whole root cause analysis of of beings and causality and understanding and science and physics. And essentially he created the comic book universe or the cinematic universe or whatever the case is before they existed. This is the guy. This is where this kind of shit comes from. And the fact that they are are internally consistent is, is something that appeals to me. It just like comic books and all that shit. Like, yeah, I like the fucking Marvel movies. I like Marvel comics. I read them when I was kids. Spider-Man and Iron Man are my favorite. And hey, guess what kind of Spider-Man and Iron Man are still my favorite, even though uh, Winter Soldier is actually my favorite Marvel movie. But these are are aspects that seem to appeal to a lot of people, not just me, not just my dumbass. And these are, there are, are uh, echoes of this. There are ripples of this. They ripple outward threads, you know, uh, the ability to follow storylines individually through this bigger uh, tapestry is really interesting. And there never was like an ambitious crossover event for Lovecraft. The idea, the, the possibility was there, right? And the real, like we're all real, real, trying to understand the rules of this world like if I say uh, Cthulhu Fnag and yeah yeah right like am I summoning a, a big squid dude uh, with beefy arms and dragon wings like what's up you know I have to ram him with the prow of my ship maybe but cast a deadly spell right and, and I realize that it's taken me a bit to get here cast a deadly spell is that it is it is all of that mixed with what we call film noir. And by we, I mean Americans, American, Americano, right? What we call film noir. And that has changed definition. It, um, it has some basis in chiaroscuro, the Italian kind of, uh, what is it? Um, charcoal drawing the charcoal frame of black and white, where it's very, very dark. Film noir has taken on certain characteristics that isn't necessarily darkness all the time, but is, has come to mean more of, of something like, and if you have like a try-hard movie, a, a try-hard cinema enthusiast, right? They'll be like, oh no, those are American crime dramas. That's fine. We just, we call them film noir. It's um, what happens when like usage kind of overruns uh, the actual denotation of the word, so to speak. So 
generally it's it's men with fedoras doing crimes in black and white. Now that's we have neo noirs, we have them in color, and uh, they're not always dark, but uh, they always will nod to them. But there's certain things that uh, certain conventions of the genre that uh, are perhaps like a single point lighting, long shadows, very stylized shadows, um, Dutch angles, uh, a, a pessimistic outlook, right? A, pessim a pessimism of humanity, right? Just humans are bad and they do crimes and all that. And, um, you know, this genre has been going on probably from the twenties and, and onwards. And it has, um, really come to focus on the detective movie, right? Where you're the, the hard boiled detective, your main character's a hard boiled detective, really, uh, rooting out crime in America, this underbelly of society. This genre was also popularized in pulp magazines and Dashiell Hammett is, um, this is one of the ones, uh, I guess, characterized for popularizing it by writing in those pulps, uh, his stories about the continental op. And, uh, that was a stand in for him. He wrote stories about his kind of reports almost as, as a private eye, as a private investigator. I believe he was a Pinkerton, which they they do some kind of shitty, morally questionable things. That was very interesting. And he had a style that was blunt, that was almost Hemingway-ish, but, um, it has come to evolve. There are other greats of the genre. The other one that I'm decently well read in is Raymond Chandler. And, uh, you know, I think Chandler really, um, you know, I think that the, the DeShiel Hammett continental op was definitely a smart ass. Uh, Sam Spade was definitely a smart ass. And, um, you know, one of the, I guess, uh, seminal works of DeShiel Hammett that you could read is Red Harvest. And Red Harvest is really great. And it's actually been adapted uh, into movies a couple of times. And you may have heard of these if you are uh, a cinema enthusiast or if you have a friend who is a cinema enthusiast or asshole, a cinema asshole. You've heard of these adaptations. They would be, uh, I believe it's Fistful of Dollars is an adaptation. Or is it for a few dollars more? I think it's for a few dollars more. I get those mixed up because it's all dollars and F words. Um, so I think it's for a few dollars more was a notable Western adaptation of red harvest where Clint Eastwood's, uh, you know, man with no name kind of plays several sides of a conflict. And, uh, as a, as like kind of like an independent contractor. And then, uh, was it, uh, Yojimbo, I believe, uh, the Akira Kurosawa, movie was an adaptation of that. And then there was uh, a Bruce Willis movie, I believe that came out in like 1996 or something, uh, which I have a, a copy of. And I started watching and Oh, I fucking hate this movie called last man standing. And it is not the, the, the Tim Allen TV show about uh, conservative dudes being dudes and wow, wow, women, they don't make sense. It's not that uh, he's in a, a prohibition era, town and shit goes sideways for him. And it's, it's an adaptation of, uh, Yojimbo, which was a, an adaptation of for a few dollars more, which was an adaptation of red harvest. 
So it, it loses something in the iterations. It's copies of copies of copies. But uh, if it's not your Jimbo, if I'm wrong, hey, I'm sorry. I'm not going to re-record this, though. But yeah, Hammett and uh, Hammett, notably the creator of Sam Spade. So we, the writer of the Maltese Falcon and uh, the Thin Man, right? Which um, the Thin Man movies are a very interesting take on the Thin Man story. And they're actually probably better than the story itself. Because the, uh, I, I forget the actor's name, but Nick and Nora Charles are are actually heroes in my book. I love Nick and Nora Charles. They're potentially one of my more beloved movie characters ever in the, in the way that they interact with each other. Right. It's, it's really wonderful. It's really great. Raymond Chandler created Philip Marlowe, Philip Marlowe, very notable, long goodbye, big sleep, a ton of short stories. Lady in the Lake, I believe is a Philip Marlowe book. And all of these have move, movie adaptations, right? Like it's all, this is all well-trodden. This is all well-trodden ground, right? So hugely prolific, both of them. But then we have neo-noirs. We have the Big Lebowski. We have Memento. We have Under the Silver Lake. I like all of those movies. I think they're all very cool for different reasons, but they are neo-noirs. There's also LA Confidential, which is, as, as Curtis Hansen said, not a noir, but a crime movie. It takes place mostly in the sun. Although the, um, the action scene there has all the, the long shadows and the darkness, right? That is characteristic of the genre. I think that, that Chris, uh, Curtis Hansen, right? Curtis Hansen was, uh, definitely trying to get that movie made and he sold it. And the movie is stellar. I have an episode on LA confidential that is early on in the podcast. I think somewhere like years ago at this point, you should check it out. I think that is a wonderful movie as well. And I talk a lot more about it. Then there's also like post noir. Like we've already gotten into that point with a genre that's, um, you know, 60, 70 years old or whatever the case is where we have movies like brick and kiss, kiss, bang, bang again, both movies that I have episodes on early on in the podcast and, uh, kind of my top in my top four, both of them, or they were, I mean, Anyway, you, you should listen to those two. Those are also spectacular movies, but they unravel the genre of film noir or, or detective movie or crime movie in different ways. They attack that expectation in different ways, and I think they're both successful in the ways that each one does it individually, which is very different from each other. They also came out kind of around the same time. They're, it's a really interesting kind of confluence. But I think the best remix of a film noir of detective uh, genre of hard-boiled genre is cyberpunk. Yeah. Cyberpunk, that really extreme kind of sci-fi. It's the best. Basically like an easy one to spot is Philip K. Dick's do androids dream of electric sheep and be it being adapted into Ridley Scott's Blade Runner that changed so many things that changed a ton of things. William Gibson writing neuromancer. Uh, which fucking slaps, by the way. You should absolutely read or audiobook Neuromancer and actually the Sprawl trilogy entirely. I think that Count Zero really plays into this uh, kind of Cthulhu mythos, honestly, in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to tell you how. You need to you need to read those books. Oh boy, do you? Um, but William Gibson was enormous on that. He uh, was credited for kind of creating the genre with those books. 
even though that's not a thousand percent true, like a lot of people uh, acknowledge John Brunner's The Shockwave Rider is kind of the first cyberpunk book. And, you know, they're not wrong. It's maybe a little more the first hacker book, kind of. Uh, but there's a lot of room for discussion there. I don't have an English degree, so I'm probably not best equipped to defend either viewpoint. But I think that it is valid, and you should read The Shockwave Rider. Shockwave Rider. Uh, I think it's a good book as well. But, you know, between them and then Neil Stevenson popping off with um, Snow Crash, which is really interesting. You know, there's also Altered Carbon that came out recently. I think Altered Carbon came out in like 2012. And that was uh, doubling down on the, the detectiveness, the film noir of cyberpunk. That was like quadrupling down. It was very much of the genre. So they are... They are similar. They vary widely in setting and in certain themes, but there is a success in that um, that uncovering, that discovering, that examination of of human nature. Right? We're going somewhere with this. We're going somewhere with this. So so bear with me. These are clearly these are clearly too long lived and shockingly popular genres that have found success in short story, in novels, and in film. And in 1993, they get a mashup. I believe that H.P. Lovecraft's works are in the public domain at this point, as he was kind of writing primarily in the 20s and 30s. And I do have a really cool anthology called Shadows Over Baker Street, which is not terribly unlike the mashup that we have here, but instead of Philip Marlowe, we have Sherlock Holmes. And it starts out with a very rad story by Neil Gaiman called The Study in Emeralds that, last I checked, you could read for free on his website. So if that's still the case, I'll drop the link in the show notes. But yes, these genres are ripe for mashing up. They work on some of the same fundamentals that can make them successful, right? They're aligned. They are business aligned. They are both aligned with the same business. So now we can get to cast a deadly spell. We can finally get there. And just to summarize the plot a little so that things make maybe some more sense, especially if you haven't seen the movie, I recommend that you do. It's streaming on HBO Max in the U.S., probably streaming where you get HBO things, not in the U.S. It takes place in the 1940s, uh, in a 1940s Los Angeles, Los Angeles, right? L.A., where magic is real, like all types of magic. It's a relatively new occurrence, and it could be likened to technology in some ways, perhaps the transistor. It's, it's not fully examined, in the runtime of the movie, but uh, reading between the lines, there is usually a theme of cost in magic. Think of Full Metal Alchemist and Equal Exchange. And, and it, it, it kind of goes under the radar. It goes unexamined. You know, nor do we find out the particulars about Harry's background, Harry, Harry Philip Lovecraft. Harry is a, a down-on-his-luck PI who refuses to use magic and uh, gets hired by a wealthy old man specifically because he refuses to use magic. Uh, the filthy old man, 
Hackshaw has a very promiscuous young daughter who is very promiscuous and very young. And, uh, there's an, he's employed, he's enlisted, he's hired to find an employee who has absconded with a particularly important book for the plot that is called the Necronomicon. Yeah, that's the one. That's some evil dead shit right there. Again, other influences from Lovecraft. The Necronomicon comes from Lovecraft, featured prominently in Evil Dead. It is the book that does all the bad things. In the process of, of finding the Necronomicon, we learn that Harry's ex-partner, uh, who I want to say is like Harry Borden, uh, as Borden, uh, had actually hired someone to get the book for him, and hijinks ensue, right? We learn through various twists and turns that the chauffeur who stole the book is actually, and I'm going to make the assumption here and say that she is a trans woman who we've already seen in a couple of other locations in the, in the movie. And it's pretty obvious that she's in cahoots with the person who double crossed Borden to keep the book. So she has the book and Lovecraft gets it from her with the help of his old flame, right? Connie, the lounge singer at Borden's club, only to find out that she sold him out to Borden as well. Turns out the book is the key to a ritual to summon a massive eldritch horror that like fucking gives out wishes or something. And Connie double crosses and kills Borden. So she's a double double crosser only to become and, and her whole plot is like to become a space fascist or something. She wants to become a God, I believe is what she says. And, uh, then uh, the rich guy from the beginning who legit wants to be a space fascist or a god or whatever it is. And I, I say that not lightly. He, um, he, he, he found a woman. He married a woman. He had child. He ostensibly killed that woman and uh, raised the child, kept her as a virgin so that he could sacrifice her for this, this day, this night, this ritual, this event, so that he could get his like wish fulfilled or whatever. And I don't know why it's that day. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the reasoning was. Was it a comet? Was it planets and alignment or some bullshit? I don't think that the movie cared too, too much about it. I definitely don't. You know, there's also some intrigue around real estate development, which is very, you know, 1940s LA and, uh, you know, 1948, right? So the post-war housing boom is real and it factored in a lot into the growth of Los Angeles. As I recall, it also factored a lot into the growth of Miami and there's a lot to it. And it's a very fascinating time to do further research on, on another podcast, not this one again, right. Reading between the lines, because there isn't a whole lot, uh, on this movie out there, but I feel like this movie started out a little different, a little more serious, and then it veered into the comedy horror space. Yeah, I realized I've talked about more than a couple of comedy horrors lately. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It seems that they were a, a fixture of my early childhood, even though I, I deny them consciously. And uh, they were just around when I was becoming aware of they They've marinated in my head for so long. Like in this one, it's it's really interesting. There's this one guy that essentially gets paper cut to death in a, a whirlwind, a whirlwind of uh, flyers or cut up flyers right? 
There are, uh, and there's, there's blood spray and everything. Like it is gross. There are these gremlins that apparently came over from Japan in the war, which is, uh, kind of racist. And, uh, they legit like show their ass to, to taunt this white guy. It's, um, and they, they actually censor language in the movie after, uh, brutally murdering a few people. They, they censor language. It, it really is a bit of whiplash. And it um, perhaps is indicative of the moral position that media was in in 1993. And I can take a lot. Uh, there's an oatmeal demon that absolutely murders a guy, and that's okay. That is fine. But um, there's the gargoyle. And the gargoyle is cool because... The gargoyles introduced, but somehow the first time I saw this movie, like I did not understand what I was seeing. And I'm a fan of Disney's gargoyles a lot. Jonathan Frakes as Xanatos is my fucking hero. Keith David, Goliath, Allison Richardson, Allison Richardson, Whitfield, Whitefield as, um, Eliza, I believe her name is Eliza Torres, maybe stellar, wonderful voice acting casts. Uh, wonderful storyline, very Arthurian, very cool, uh, very dark is rising. If you have read that, I read that. I have the books here. They are weird, but the dark is rising kind of slaps and, and Greenwich kind of slaps and stuff like that. The other ones are a little weirder, but yeah, there's a gargoyle in this movie and, um, it's pretty gruesome looking. It's not cool looking like the ones in the gargoyle cartoon. At first, I just thought it was a gargoyle, like, on the house, a decoration. But then we get, like, the POV, uh, Sam Fisher night vision view that the gargoyle has. And I'm like, I don't understand what that is. Then we see the gargoyle flying around following Harry. And I'm like, oh, may maybe that's the gargoyle. And then he fights the gargoyle. That is Chekhov's gargoyle. And that gargoyle fight, um, it's not great. It's not great. Harry, um... Harry empties a revolver into the gargoyle and he's like, bah, 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 bah. he's actually laughing. And then he gets kicked in the nards and gargoyles have nards and are impervious to bullets is like two really dumb things. But I'm sure someone thought it was funny. This is after this is post monster squad, right? So Wolfman has nards. Yep. Wolfman has nards. So I don't like this movie for that. Um, it's not that I'm not saying I don't like this movie. I like this movie. But I don't like it for that reason. I think that shit is it could I could I could definitely leave it and feel better. <coughs> I understand why the gargoyle was necessary for the plot. But I would have loved to have uh wrapped that up a little differently. You know, there's a, a tongue in cheekness to this and there's apparently from from what I've gathered, again reading between the lines because I'm an idiot, that people think that this kind of uh, and by people, I mean critics and maybe public in general think that this kind of detective, uh, fiction is silly, is, um, over the top is unnecessary. I, I, I don't think so. I actually, I just, I like it straight up. I don't like it. Ironically, I'm not like, oh, that line is so bad. No, no, no. I like it. I like it how it is. I like it how it was read. I like it how it played. I fucking like it. There is, um... There's a point where Lovecraft gets asks, asks, asked, asked 
what he wants to drink, and he answers, bourbon, show it water, but make it discreet. And I'm not thinking it's cheesy. I think I'm thinking it's clever. I'm thinking it's awesome. Thinking that uh, Lovecraft is like at least level three in uh, UCB or IO, right? He's really kicking ass in his improv classes, and he's going places. Not all the jokes land. Again, the gargoyles, a joke that did not land. But the movie does the work, right? They get in there and they, they make it happen. It, it realistically feels like they're, they're attempting to make a feature at half the budget. You know, which is to say that it has a very specific look. And, um, you know, I believe that the specific look gives unconsciously gives the audience an expectation. You know, it's like when you're flipping channels and, and just based on the color grade or, or the other aspects, you can, you know, visual aspects, you can tell, oh, this is a sitcom. This is a, you know, procedural, hour-long drama, whatever. <coughs> this is, uh, there are shows that are network formulaic and you can tell right away, like I could probably spot a BBC show from a mile away because that just the way that they produce the image on the show is very consistent with other shows. So this is before, you know, prestige cable was a thing. This is before independent movies were really hitting big. This is just after clerks, just barely after clerks. And even then like stuff didn't really hit until probably chasing Amy. This was interesting. They do play it by genre. They play it by detective genre, but they don't play it by horror. It's uh, it's not particularly bright, and you'll get you'll get some decent shadows on the face. There are occasions for those long, angular shadows, single point of light type things. There are very deep reds, and um, speaking of which, uh, giallo is probably another uh, genre that I've maybe talked about at some point in time, but it is... Uh, Another branch of film noir, I would say an international one, and uh, definitely worth discussing. Deep Red is a notable example of, of that genre, which I've seen and which was very interesting. You know, the camera uh, is, is placed relatively normally for a narrative. I think doesn't have those hard Dutch angles for the most part. There are a couple of low angles on the characters to make them look big. Um to remind you, I guess, what the underside of their features looks like. Um, and that, that is part of the detective game. It's just having that, having that imagery. There are times where the lighting goes into nice, right? Into elegant, even a wonderful artistic choices. But for the most part, it is functional, not flashy. Even when it's really, really good, it's still very, very functional. And it never goes into full horror. That's not a thing that it ever does. And I think that's for the best. Yeah, you know, there's a huge creature at the end. Sure. And uh, it's really gross. Absolutely. And it's eating people. You betcha. But but the money wasn't fully there for that creature. Right? They had to kuloshav it up. They had to be like, oh, it, yep, we showed you tentacles. And now we're showing you a person yelling. They're clearly grasped by these tentacles that they are not grasped by and that is acting. They do that. They resort to that. That is that TV movie budget, TV movie attitude talking. But the creature is great. The creature is horrifying. The creature is super gross. And um, it, 
listen, the movie had the chops to just be bloodier and more serious, but it didn't. And whoever made that call made the right call, I think. This could have easily been too serious. There was a follow-up movie called uh, Witch Hunt, where Dennis Hopper portrays Harry Lovecraft. And, um, yeah, from, from what I saw, it's not fun at parties. So anyway, let's, uh, let's get into the folks who made this happen. Joseph, uh, Doherty, Doherty, Daughtry. Let's start over. <coughs> oh God, I'm sick. I can't, I can't do my, my bullshit, my normal bullshit. Um, so Joseph, uh, Doherty is how I'm going to, uh, assume to pronounce his name. He's the, the sole writer on this and is, uh, interesting. It's an interesting movie coming from him. As far as I know, I mean, he, he kind of created this, uh, the concept for this script, this movie. Uh, he had a writing credit for a show called private eye, uh, early on whose character synopsis is of similar archetypal nature as Harry Lovecraft. <coughs> but just before Castadelli's spell came out, he was most known for writing on the TV show 30 something, which was from my recollection, uh, roughly the, how I met your mother for my parents. Dirty was also a writer on a small movie called steel and lace, which was apparently a gory revenge genre movie. I think that there's a lot of commonality here, a lot of overlap. And I see a lot of writers often starting in horror and then drifting into this crime, crime or detective stuff. He went on to do attack of the 50 foot woman, a remake that sounds exactly like what it is and uh, witch hunt, which is a sequel to cast a deadly spell that I believe that I may have mentioned and witch hunt is not good. So confession, I actually started watching Witch Hunt. I, I hunted Witch Hunt down. I didn't, um, and I'll, I'll just drop my hot little review here. So I, I saw about 20 minutes of Witch Hunt. And so right off the bat, the tone is very different from Cast a Deadly Spell. And by tone, I mean, I mean, everything, everything was different. It's a, it's a super bright movie. It's, um, it's, uh, airing on the side of cheese. Dennis Hopper feels like he's auditioning for the part of Adrian Monk on the USA TV show Monk, uh, based on how he carries himself and how he's framed and how he's acting. His performance is, is, is whimsical and slight and non-threatening. It's almost as if they started tossing around the term Lynchian, right? They're like, Oh, make it Lynchian. And, uh, then they found that, uh, Angelo Badalamenti and De Dennis Hopper were available and that that would make it, Lynchian, it's like the bright parts of Mulholland Drive while not having any of the dark ones, at least not in the first 20 minutes. I don't know that it ever would, though. There is not that uh, Lynchian dissonance of the uh, outside world or the, 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 in, the normal world and the internal worlds and things like that. Those are, those are things that he does. Those are, are things that he works on. Those are things that he looks to achieve. And uh, it was not happening here, not from what I saw. They did take a, a, a 
couple of big swings. They did one where uh, Hippolyta, who, who makes a comeback, and I thought her character was was pretty great. Hippolyta makes a comeback, and she casts a spell, right? And uh, the words kind of come out of her mouth like CG. And unfortunately, it's like 1994 HBO TV movie CG in it. It does not achieve, but it, it was impressive for the ambition. And if you want to see like the next level version of that, like the, the 3000 galaxy brain version, that would be the character silver tongue in uh, doom patrol, how she speaks and the words come out of her mouth and then they become physical weapons that she can use. So yeah, they tried doing something cool. It didn't work out. Odds are it was uh, limited or constrained in two ways. One was capability. It's the early nineties. They, you know, just really started hard in CG uh, with Jurassic Park in 93. And uh, then the second one would be uh, money because it, it does cost money. All that shit costs money and it probably costs a lot more back then than it does now. Right. So yeah, the movie only made it to VHS. As far as I know, there is no disc version of it. It's not worth tracking down unless you're some type of uh, completionist collector. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as long as there's nothing wrong with that. Don't let, uh, don't let it take over your life. Yeah. Don't, uh, you know, I, I, I like cast a deadly spell. I can understand if you like cast a deadly spell, but I did not like witch hunt and I don't think that it's worth hunting down. So yeah, I really didn't, um, have an, much of an idea of, of, uh, Doherty's work after that. Uh, I have some idea of 30 something actually, cause I used to watch it with my mom when I was like a child, like an, an actual child. And, um, yeah, but I saw that in 2013, Doherty created a show called Ravenswood on ABC family. And, uh, apparently that's a spinoff of pretty little liars, or as I would normally say it, pretty little liars, right? Like just all these, uh, consonant sounds that I normally skip over. <laughs> and, um, they only got one season out of it you know, unfortunately, but it's, it's about a deadly curse on a Pennsylvania town. And I imagine that, uh, it is both based on the subject matter, dealing with the occult and a mystery, which is, it's fun times. And it's really uh, par for his course outside of 30 something a little bit. Uh, you know, these are echoes really of cast a deadly spell ripples through time, sea beams glittering in the dark near the Tannhauser gate. And I, I really dig that. I really like the idea of mixing those two things. I do, you know, up top, I kind of outlined, like, I feel like these are all made to be successful in the same way. And I think that it's true. It just depends on how you do it. Implementation matters. It's not just guaranteed success. It is still difficult to be a writer and write these things or be a creator and create these things. Uh, aside from all the other stuff of acting and uh, production and all that, it's difficult. Movies are hard, team. Movies are hard to do. It takes a lot of people, a lot of hard work. So I'll take a minute to talk about IATSE because the IATSE strike or the potential IATSE strike is, um, is a subject du jour, right? Or not du jour, but like du, sem du semaine, uh, semana, uh, de la semana of the week. I don't remember how to say week in French. I want to say it's like semaine, um, because it's almost like Spanish. You know, when I say that it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of people to make a movie. It really does. It takes hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands. In some cases, some of the bigger Marvel movies are like 10,000 jobs and, uh, it's a lot. So 
there is yeah, a union for a lot of the, the crafts people, not like craft services, but like, or, or maybe also craft services. I don't know, but, uh, your audio and all that stuff. And that, that kind of blimp union is called IATSE, right? I A T S E. Right. And it's, um, man, what does this stand for? I'm here talking about IATSE and I don't know what the fuck it stands for. Jeez. I'm a hot mess team. I'm super sick. I just, I need to get this podcast out on the day that it's going to come out. I cannot wait because then everything is ruined. Um, and their, their tag is the union behind entertainment. The fuck. I just had it. I'm such an asshole. The international Alliance of theatrical stage employees, right? So these are also your people on stage. So there are your grips and, uh, electricians and gaffers and, you know, your, uh, set people, your, all that stuff. Like there's so much that goes into it. Like, so Teamsters are drivers. They drive. So that's the Teamsters union is, is mostly drivers, commercial and otherwise. And then you have your, your SGA, uh, your, your, your SGA, Jesus Christ, your SAG, your screen actors guilds and, uh, your writers guilds. And those are the unions for those professions. And there's a, I believe there's a director's guild as well. And, um, you know, all the, all these unions do is they kind of push for, uh, reasonable conditions and compensation. That's, that's really their, their aim and their goal. And I know a couple of people that work in, in the industry, one that has been pretty vocal about the circumstances that has brought about the situation is, uh, Alan Williams of the YouTube channel sound speeds, uh, speed, right? They, they named the movie speed, speed. <laughs> in France, speed. That's an Eddie Izzard joke. It's a very good one, though. That was when he does stand up in French, and it's very funny. Ah, Burundi, je le connais bien. It's very good. It's very good. You should go watch that. You should watch that. Uh, but um, it is. It it can be, and especially now, right where there's been a, a year missing, it it can be punishing the schedules that these folks are put through, and there is no consequence really for a lot of uh productions in doing that. And sometimes there are, are reasons behind it. And then you know what, you should assess that reason and decide if it's worth a lot of money to you. Uh, but sometimes people just schedule things, uh, poorly or suboptimally or, or difficultly or obtusely because they feel like it. So it's not about not making movies. It's not, uh, just about getting paid more, although, you know, uh, raises for cost of living and things like that are, are really important. And, We've seen a lot of wage stagnation in the U.S. period, so that's all going to be helpful. But really, it's about the scheduling and about the quality of life for people who are working hard, who are on their feet, who are busting their ass on 14-hour days and then having to come right back a few hours later and bust ass again and do it overnight and do all these things. So <clears throat> they work hard to the point that their safety is at risk, and a couple of people have died. This year, this year, I believe, uh, and, and you can check out, uh, the sound speeds kind of videos that he has on the IATSE stuff where he talks to some union folks as well, and he'll give you the skinny, the inside scoop, right? The straight dope, the hard dick <laughs> as that one, um, as that one Iron Man comic says it, but it's really important that, um, all of these people, these thousands and thousands and thousands of people have working conditions that make it safe for them to go home that make it safe for them to have a family life because that's what, that's what it's about. 
you know, we, we, we go to work, we work hard and we go home and we live our lives and then we go back and do it again. That is the American dream. Not, um, not trying to drive two hours on, you know, three hours of sleep and an 18 hour day. Not like that. Only to do it again in another two hours. Right. So yeah, uh, check that out. IATSE and, um, I don't know how I got onto IATSE. I'm so sick. Um, okay. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move on. You know, it, um, the, the concept of mixing mystery and magic it seems successful. It seems obvious and it's, it's pretty novel. It doesn't happen all that much. I think it's a, a bit of a risk from a production standpoint. They're like, Oh, is this going to make money? How many, uh, unwashed nerds are going to go out and see this, but it does take, um, a director with vision to rein this all in. There was a director with vision on this movie and, um, he prevented it from becoming a spoof of itself, really. And I think that that might have been what was lacking in Witch Hunt. And that director was Albert Einstein. No, no, it wasn't. It was Martin Campbell. And if you've heard the name, Campbell, if you've heard that name, it is quite likely that you've associated it with a little franchise you might know called James Bond. Martin Campbell, personally, has greatly changed the trajectory of my life in relation to James Bond with his direction on GoldenEye in 1995 and Casino Royale in 2006. He has expressed little uh, desire to come in and just do another entry into the Bond series, and I believe that he put it quite poetically and succinctly. So he clearly knows what he wants out of his life, and that is wonderful, and we're here for it, because he's um, he's definitely had a, a, quite a career as an action director after after cast the deadly spell he would go on to direct the mask of zorro which fucking slaps vertical limit the legend of zorro the sequence of the mask of zorro among several other films and um you know it's interesting that in, in eyeballing his filmography one might be able to say that he's more successful in the uh realistic right quote fingers or more grounded quote fingers films versus the more CGI or fantastical ones. His most recently completed movies are The Foreigner with Jackie Chan and The Protégé with Maggie Q. And I would, um, I would based on casual inspection, I would put them in the same folder as John Wick and nobody in my, my movie directory because they look to be uh, in that, not that style, but in that uh, oeuvre, right? They have the same idiom of this uh, gritty yet elegant uh, grounded action style that were, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they kind of are superheroes, but they do not have superpowers kind of thing. And um, I think that these this style of movies was a little bit uh, <coughs> pioneered and encouraged by the success of Casino Royale and its very different approach to uh, fight scenes and stunt choreography than the previous James Bond movies and team you like him or hate him. The, the James Bond franchises, uh, definitely hugely influential. And I, I both like and hate those movies. It depends on the movie depends on the time of day, but you know, there are a couple that are, that are kind of solid all the way through either be it through quality or nostalgia. And, uh, you know, it just so happens that golden eye and casino Royale are, are Two of my favorites. Martin Campbell obviously did not make Witch Hunt, as I just said. Uh, he was making No Escape, an action movie that I've never seen. 
and he was probably well into pre-production with Goldeneye, so I think that he just made the right choice to not do a witch hunt if that was a choice that was given to him. I'd just be like, nah. Uh, but he makes action movies. That's that's what it is, you know. He 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 just he re-upped James Bond twice. He is he makes he may, perhaps he makes the action movies. Uh, when did the Bourne movies start coming out? That's actually a great question because the Bourne movies were also big on that. Uh, oh man, the Bourne Identity, two thousand two. Okay, so before Casino. So interestingly enough, I'm here kind of talking out of my ass, but a really uh, more grounded, realistic, super yet not superhero movie that probably changed the game was uh, the Bourne Identity. Even though uh, the Born Supremacy really hit Shaky Cam hard, it was so frenetic and frantic. And I actually like it. I appreciate it because when you read the book, that uh, the description is like he moves his hands so so fast, like it's just out of instinct. It's like a human with eyes would not um, register all the movements and things like that. So Shaky Cam really puts us into the energy of the fight, if not the visual inspection of the fight, which is fine. It's a choice. <coughs> It's a choice. It can be good. It can be bad. It can be overdone. It can be uh, underrepresented. It can be all those things. Martin Campbell really makes action movies. And, you know, for a stupid American like myself, it is easy to overlook his 1985 BAFTA for the miniseries Edge of Darkness, which um, which I think I saw that Mel Gibson movie. I don't know. He directed that one, too, but I really don't remember it. There are a lot of uh, puppets and, and creatures in, in this movie, this movie being cast a deadly spell. And I don't know that that would have um, that that would have stayed in his wheelhouse. I think that he he took it and he he did the work right. Uh, there are some action scenes and they're they're pretty good. The kitchen fight is really competently like made. I was like, oh fuck, it was so tense. And um, you know, yeah, I got lost in space there a little bit, but that's okay. I'm not I'm not trying to nitpick. I like the movie. I, I understand it for what it is, also, which is. Um, you know, some people saw it as, as campy, uh, you know, all the way through. It's not. There is an element of that, sure. But I think that it is really writing this super-duper fine line where it can be funny, it can be campy, it can be uh, tense and engaging and serious, and, hey, maybe even a little bit scary, right? But um, he, he really gets these action scenes down. He nails them, and he nails the general tone and feel for the movie as well. I think that somebody going too hard on uh, the genre stuff would have, I guess, it eliminated any room for mixture by just kind of solidly identifying it, or, or too solidly, I think, because it is solidly identified as a as a kind of film noir in the lens of how I describe it. But he nails down, you know, the general feel of the movie, right? He, he gets the movie and it goes, um, whatever. The cast is a really interesting group of people as well. Fred Ward starts out the list as Harry Lovecraft, and he's one of those people I just know by sight. Ward has a, a really specific look where he could be real easygoing or just kick the shit out of you, and you don't necessarily know which until it happens. This is just his, his features, his physical features, I mean, because he's an actor, and, and he can act. He's a, He was an amateur boxer, so there's a, a physicality that he has that not everyone can bring. But it feels real easy to him watching the final product. He doesn't feel like he's struggling in any of the fights or the action scenes at all. 
and he's funny too. I, I think I probably know him most from Tremors, Naked Gun 33 and a third, Chain Reaction, or True Detective Season 2, where he plays Colin Farrell's character's dad. I really did like Ward in the role for Lovecraft quite a bit. I think his quips aren't too quippy, and uh, I think that he looks like he's not fucking around. So good stuff, honestly. David Warner uh, fulfills the role of our big bad. And I mean, he's, uh, and, and the big bad's name is uh, Ashcroft, uh, some shit like that. I don't know, the old rich guy. I'm sick, I swear to God. But uh, David Warner is, is Sark in Tron. He's uh, Ra's al Ghul in Batman the Animated Series, which is just a fucking spectacular voice. He plays Thomas Eckert in Twin Peaks. He's done a ton of stuff, and if you want to typecast him, you could just say a posh British dude who can be uh, politely sinister as fuck. Send tweet. Julianne Moore is radiant as Connie Stone, showgirl and ex-lover of Lovecraft's. Moore has always been a mystery to me. I don't, um, I don't know why I have this issue, but I primarily think of her in The Big Lebowski and The Kids Are All Right. Like, those are the two images of her that come up for me whenever I think of her. I think I've seen several of her movies, and I think that she's worked a bunch. But when just, it's, those two movies always just kind of hit for me. Anyway, she's, um, she's got the chops, and it's pretty early in her career. Uh, with a, a perhaps rocky, I guess, final cut of the movie. But she brings it home. I would have wanted a little more for her character, but I thought that she was just swell. Clancy Brown, who plays Lovecraft's ex-partner turned gangster Harry Borden, is another one of those fantastically unique character voices who is prolific in voice acting and is a Disney and DC animated universe alum, among tons of other things. When you see his face, you'll probably remember him as the captain of the prison guard in the Shawshank Redemption. He's also the Kurgan in Highlander, but he's much younger there. And uh, he's, he's worked up a fuck ton and I always love to see or hear him I think he's just great Lee Turgeson is going to round out the cast of mostly lower key players he's also worked a ton but I know him best from Wayne's World 1 and 2 as Terry one of the titular characters as uh, friends or, or roadies you know and, and thinking back I'm I'm medium unsure what the dynamic there is but everyone on their TV crew feels like guitar techs or roadies and that it's like a band and a concert kind of thing, as much as they feel like friends, or, or probably maybe more so. And that's something I've actually given zero thought to in the past. He worked on HBO's show Oz for a long span, and has been a guest star or series regular in many, many shows. You will have absolutely seen him before. Turgeson plays Larry Willis, a.k.a. Lily Sirwar, the, and again, I'm going to assume here, transsexual woman, who, with her partner, were intending to double-cross Borden and abscond with the money and the Necronomicon. And that scene with Lily and Lovecraft is, is pretty rough. He's uh, Lovecraft definitely has been charming the whole movie, and then he actually turns into a real son of a bitch, a real motherfucker in that scene. And, um, you know, it's not about being a snowflake or not, uh, but, like, when the hero uh, of the movie, the hero of the piece, uh, really starts fucking acting out like sometimes you feel that like he'd been a bit of a boy scout up until then a bit not a lot just a bit 
And then he throws that right out the window. And I think that that is a, a key character moment that we realize that Lovecraft is not a, a knight in shining armor, that there's more to him and uh, that it's complicated. I know that it was the 90s and even more so that the movie is set in the 40s. So that kind of behavior uh, tracks like he really um, kind of goes after the the gender issue there a bit, uh, aside from just like normal, like kicking the shit out of somebody. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely could have gone worse, but it was a tough watch. But that, that lines up, you know, with this kind of hard-boiled uh, detective thing. And I think that Hellblazer... Uh, was a little bit of an inspiration on this movie as well, except uh, instead of Constantine, it's Lovecraft, and he doesn't do magic, as opposed to really doing magic in a bad, big, bad way. But uh, Hellblazer is another a really cool comic book, and if you saw the um, movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves, it was uh, I think that's a cool movie, but um, it's not Hellblazer. And there was a show called... Uh, God, what was the show called? Was it called Hellblazer, or was it called Constantine? There was a TV show on the head of, um, I believe it was Berlanti, because uh, uh, the character Constantine from this show makes cameos in the Berlanti verse. But um, whatever the fuck the show is called, I, I can't remember right now. It might have been called John Constantine. It followed the beginning of, of Hellblazer, like volume one, like pretty okay up until it got real violent and weird. But it was a network show, it was on Fox. So, of course, they're going to neuter it. Um, but that was a really interesting experiment, and I loved the guy that they got uh, to play Constantine, or Constantine, actually, is, I believe, how the pronunciation is, if you ask Alan Moore. I wouldn't know, again, stupid American, right? But yeah, I, I'm, I think I talked about it already, uh, but there's some kind of squiggly through lines in this movie. Nothing is um, outright wrong with it, but there are certain things like uh, Connie's character, who was so set on becoming a god that she kills a man in cold blood just tucking tail and, and getting thrown in jail. I believe that there was another version of this movie that was more set up to be a pilot than this one, as if they filmed the TV movie and a TV pilot, or an episode one, all at once. TV is, is, is weird like that, and, and sometimes pilots are filmed with closure because the audience might like that better as a TV movie, right? Twin Peaks' pilot uh, notoriously was a TV movie, and when they made it for European TV, that straight up had to solve the murder. Like, right then and there. Like, the murder was solved before the TV show even happened. And that's that's because European TV, they just do straight movies, two-hour movies. and um, Or an hour 46 movie or whatever, as opposed to American, which is like an hour and a half movie or, or whatever the case is. So they needed 20 extra minutes, and they had to solve the murder. The X-Files pilot is also a small little movie that is pretty self-contained. But, uh, you know, that you straight, you straight up see a UFO. Like, there are aliens. This movie does this cool things too. It, it, things that let you know that time and care was put into it. You know, right? one of my favorite details of the movie is that uh, the spell that Tugwell gives the guy at the diner to give to Lovecraft. In every shot, the that where the paper is visible, it's a different paper. There's um, a really Lovecraftian conceit about the malleability of reality and all the impossible angles and cyclopean architecture and things like that, like things that we as humans believe to be real and inalienable and inalienable. And, uh, we take for granted like gravity and, uh, matter and, and geometry and things like that. And he would always like to break that, uh, concept down. So they do it here in a really cool way with that spell. 
and it's like zero money. It's it's a very good gag. Like I thought that I was having a medical emergency when I was watching this because I was trying to read like what it said, and it was different every fucking time. And the inserts on the paper are real short, so you know I had to like go through frame by frame afterwards and, and kind of confirm. And I pulled those frames; they're in the the show notes. If you haven't, if you can't see the show notes and the images in the show notes, go to the website scumbags.com, S-E-U-M-M-B-A-G-S, or if you have a link to the original page or URL or whatever from your podcast app, go check it out there. But uh, it, it's a tiny detail, and subconsciously you might react to it. I did. I was like, oh, I'm having an issue. Well, not subconsciously. I was consciously looking at it, but it, it definitely made me feel a certain type of way, and it was a frantic kitchen fight scene. So, you know, there's um there's a lot going on. It was really cool. It was re- injected a really interesting energy into that there's also that shot of of lovecraft walking down the alley with a little bit of water in the gutter in the middle in the beginning and uh, i've I've seen that shot before now i might be fabricating a memory but uh i think very specifically that it's uh at some point in the counter fifth detective arc of the comic hundred bullets and it's a shot of milo walking down a similar alley and uh this arc the counter fifth detective which i think is five issues is very much a kind of film noir type arc where he's like a pi or whatever and he gets into those fights and it's like uh hits like a ton of bricks and stuff like that it's really cool and 100 bullets is really um interesting and i don't think i ever finished it Uh, and at this point i don't know that i want to i just want to kind of live with the memories that i have of it but um i i feel like i took note of this because i was planning on starting a photography project that was uh, recreating comics panels. And um, I really didn't have the resources to undertake that at the time. I mean, not now either, but uh, back then I was really uh, much less equipped, uh, you know, materially and emotionally to do that if I wanted to. Um, you know, so, so what I'm thinking now, right, is seeing it again, is that it's a reference to another movie that either I can't remember or I haven't seen. And uh, I'm not certain which yet, but as November rolls on, I may stumble across it, and that would make me happy. But this movie, uh, Cast a Deadly Spell, really had a spark to it. Reception was good, uh, generally good, and and so much came after it that I think was influenced by it. I think of Buffy the Vampire Slayer a lot and the way that it navigated the themes in this world and the occult, but I also think of Lovecraft Country for a few reasons. You know, one obviously is the subject matter. It It's Lovecraft in the real world. And they basically could have been happening concurrently. Cast a deadly spell in L.A. and Lovecraft Country in New England. But this movie did have lower key versions of the themes that Lovecraft Country went hard on. Harry Borden has a literal zombie as a bodyguard. Honest, fucking raised from the dead zombie. Lovecraft asks him about them decomposing. And Borden says they're, they're $30 to a head or something like that. Which isn't cheap per se in 1940s money, but he's also a gangster of means. And Tugwell says something to the effect of, we get them straight from Africa, come six to a box. So clearly they're working with a mentality that zombies are disposable resources. And the zombie is, is a big black guy that's brought over on a ship from Africa. So it is uh, quite literally using the wild-ass premise of, of magic in the world to talk about slavery. And it's not a main theme, right? You know, again, at the housing development site, you see more zombies putting together all the houses and stuff like that. 
it's all zombies doing the manual labor. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember if that was a hint as to who owns the housing development or not. I forget. But uh, the movie does drop hints well and with care. You probably needed to knew everything you needed to know if you were observant enough. And people worked hard on that, and that is uh, subconsciously we are receptive to it. But getting back to the themes, that's basically the big theme of Lovecraft Country, right? And I loved how they worked so much more into it, both in the book and the show in various ways. Also, there's a character named Hippolyta in both Lovecraft Country and Cast a Deadly Spell. And, you know, at least in the U.S., that is not a common name. Or not Hippolyta, Hippolyta, right? I like saying Hippolyta. I, I like it better. I also saw it, I think, spelled differently the first time that I ever saw that name. And it just uh, imprinted that way. But Hippolyta, Hippolyta, right? It sounds more Latin than Hippolyta, right? That long Ida at the end is weird. And hippo just seems like a you know big animal. Uh, but Hippolyta, both Hippolytas are very cool in Lovecraft Country and in Cast a Deadly Spell. And then the ending in, in Cast a Deadly Spell where Hippolyta is welcoming Harry back from saving the world was 100% the, and here is the TV series shit, right? That, that was the intro. That was it. Uh, Dresden Files is another series that I think kind of plays off this this type of structure very well. And it's very much in the modern style of Chandler in a world where magic exists. Similarly, um, similarly saving the world from bad people with plans and stakes. And they, they serialize over, over some long, over several books, um, most wrapped up within that one book. And, uh, the, you know, the story really starts to grow and change and it's really cool. So if you're into like some kind of, um, magic mystery, crime detective shit. Um, maybe not so Chandlerian as, as much as it might be Michael Connolly's Bosch, which also wears its uh, Chandler influence on its sleeve. The Dresden Files might be for you. There was a show with Paul Blackthorne uh, that I think lasted one or, or maybe one and a half seasons or something like that. And I saw it and it was it was cool. It was cool. It, it maybe could have been something, maybe it was too expensive. Uh, very Canadian uh, TV but you can find those uh, streaming probably or on disc. I have DVDs of it because I was really obsessed for a hot second there. And Hey, um, does anybody remember HBO from, from the early nineties? Does there anybody remember how, how TV was back then? Like you would need to actually get a TV guide and, and read it, an actual physical paper TV guide that came in the newspaper and HBO movies would start at ridiculous times. Like, 210 or 950. <coughs> yeah, things were um things were different back then. Pre-TV guide channel. You just had to you just had to read the TV guide. And I, I would read the entire TV guide every week. Just sit there and look at the times for things. I was a weird kid. When commercials said check your local listings, I really took that shit serious. You know, but maybe that's what kept the show from going to series. Maybe Maybe the producers and the creators kind of upscaled its success and rolled it into another film because TV was really thought to be shitty and trashy compared to feature film back then. And TV film was maybe just a step above TV. So times are different now and, and bringing this to series had it come out with the circumstances that we have, it could have been hugely successful quite possibly. And so just, um, to kind of um, 
play a little mind game. And I know that there's other, um, other kind of podcasts that do this too. Uh, but like this one kind of struck me. Uh, there's, I think one called the recasting couch and there's one, uh, called, or, or the, the ringer does casting what ifs, which are uh, people who are up for roles and those are cool. But, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of recast my, my prestige TV version of this show. And I would love to hear what kind of cast you think you could line up for a prestige show. Hit me up on Twitter at cool mark d cool with a c and mark with a k so for harry lovecraft i would really love john Bridthall, who for a while i thought must have been related to fred ward uh he played a, a show uh he played a show well he played a 40s lapd detective in a show on tnt called mob city and um he's got the look he's got the attitude i think that mob city really could have been something it's a frank darabont production um it's really got the look it's really gorgeous but it's also a bit violent and the story kind of gets convoluted it is based in events so i think they had markers that they wanted to hit and and the the journey to get there is, is pretty interesting but a lot of good um a lot of good people in that show right so they have um milo ventimiglia playing kind of opposite burnthal as an antagonist of some sort and um, that was a really good dynamic, I think, because uh, Milo's so clean cut and put together compared to uh, John Bernthal's more kind of physical and rundown uh, detective. So like maybe uh, Harry Borden, Milo Ventimiglia would be good, but he's, he's a little bit smaller. He's like shorter than John Bernthal, at least from what the show illustrated. And I don't know that that would be good because Clancy Brown compared to Fred Ward, Clancy Brown is huge. And I did like that dynamic, but he was super sleazy. Like maybe somebody a little different in there, but yeah, for, for Lovecraft, uh, I really like John Bernthal. If, if, if we want to take an approach for an older Harry Lovecraft, then I think maybe Bob Odenkirk could do it. I just saw nobody and Odenkirk fucking brings it. You know, I've seen it. He, he brings a physicality and obviously the motherfucker can act like nobody's business. So, you know, we could do that. We could also do like a Jeffrey Dean Morgan, right? To see how that goes, how that plays, but he's very charismatic as well, you know? So I don't, you know, um, I guess for Bob Odenkirk's uh, Lovecraft, I, I, I really think that Danny Houston might be a, a good Borden. I think that could work for an older Lovecraft, but, um, yeah, I think that, um, or, or J.K. Simmons, actually. J.K. Simmons against uh, uh, opposite Odenkirk might be really interesting. Um, but if we're doing like the, the, the mid-40s, like John Bernthal, he's, he's 45. He looks younger than I do. Um, you know, I have, I have a couple of options. Uh, like I like Lee Pace. I like Lee Pace because he's 6'5". And he's stellar. He's great. But he's really, um, he's really got psychopath energy, for lack of a better word. And, uh, sometimes it's not always what you want, but he's just, he goes hard as fuck. He's so intense in everything that I've seen him in, you know, look wise, I think that maybe Jensen Ackles could go for it. <clears throat> and I, I say looks wise, I haven't really seen him too, too much. The most I've seen is like, uh, the first season of supernatural maybe, but I know that he does like, um, I think he does Batman's voice in Harley Quinn and he's definitely got 
the look for it. I think he's got a voice for it. I think he can have the build and be that more clean cut uh, opposite of John Bernthal. And I'm 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 kind of trying to match his age as well, right? I'm trying to make them be like brothers that fell out. But I also think, um, you know, kind of out of left field, I think Brandon Routh. I guess I was thinking of the Berlanti verse, and uh, Brandon Routh played Ray Palmer in the Berlanti verse. And I like Brandon Routh. I've I've always liked Brandon Routh. I mean, you even thought he was great as Superman. Just that Superman movie was uh, really interesting and 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 marketed strangely. He punches nobody in the whole movie, but that's okay. He doesn't have to. But it's odd, right? Brandon Routh is a couple inches taller than Berntal, a little younger, definitely has that kind of clean-cut Boy Scout look, and he's pretty fucking jacked, right? So he can be nice, and, and he can be he can be a sweet guy. Like, if you listen to him on the commentary for Scott Pilgrim, he is 1,000% earnestly into it, and it is wonderful and perfect, and really, he's just a great guy. I think he's great to work with, and... I wish him all the success in the world, but I wonder, can he be mean, right? Can he be a villain? Can he be an antagonist? And I think he could. I think he could. I think it would be interesting to have a Borden who isn't so overtly and obviously and immediately that bad guy that he turns out to be, shapes out to be. I think that'd be interesting to try to unravel a little bit of, of their history as this prestige uh, series goes on into its six or ten episodes or whatever. Connie, though, Connie's character, I would want to have a bigger turn as a femme fatale. I did like Julianne more for it. Here, I, I definitely shot myself in the foot. The hair and, and makeup are going to go a long way to transforming the look, so I'm going to try not to focus on, on that too much. I In my head, this is a, a tall woman, but Julianne Moore is not particularly tall, but the movie kind of, kind of made that happen, so to speak. But I'm looking for someone who can be all of the things, a performer, a lover, a double crosser and a killer. And with more time to develop all of that, I think that the character will, will hit harder. I'm going to throw out, uh, you know, Rachel McAdams maybe, but also maybe that's because I was thinking of true detective season two. And yeah, you know, for Borden, I kept thinking about Vince Vaughn as well. Uh, I did like him in that that gangster role, uh, but maybe uh, maybe Rose Byrne or Rosamund Pike, yeah, or or Catherine Hahn. Catherine Hahn can can do anything, be in anything. I am a okay with that. But yeah, that's my that's my casting. I guess I didn't really make a a, a strong decision on that one. I'll just have to see who's available, right? <coughs> see who's got the time. Um. But I, I really do think that this movie could have been something, uh, either movies or, or TV. And I wonder how many other TV movies just didn't quite make it. Uh, I saw another one recently by Toby Hooper, of all people. And it's called I'm Dangerous Tonight, starring Major Namik. And that could have been something. I saw it after watching uh, Toby Hooper's 1985, I don't know what the fuck, movie called Life Force. And yeah, maybe I was just in a weird place at that point in time. But uh, I do remember thinking, how the hell did Major Namik not become an instant huge star after Twin Peaks in this? And I'm sure there are both real reasons and, and non-reasons, right? 
um, there are real reasons in terms of some kind of quality or whatever the hell and, and non reasons like luck, it's just unlucky or, or whatever the case is. And I'm, I'm trying not to Monday morning quarterback anyone's career, but I did, I thought that TV movie had something too. It obviously wasn't perfect, but there was really a soul in it and a heart to it that could have, could have gone places. But yeah, this is me. I am apologies for, for being sick and relatively mono, mono, monotonic. Is that the word for it? This is, um, the movie cast a deadly spell kicking off noir November Mark's movie collection where podcasts are found podcasts are found. I don't know if I popped the mic. I'm far as shit and I have a, a windscreen. So that'd be a feat. Like and subscribe. And uh, casting is difficult, team. Casting is a skill and casting is a talent. Movies are difficult. You know, be nice. And I just wanted to say I really did. Uh, I really did think that Connie's character deserved a little more. She was she was really too great of a character to just lock up for murder. Let's see if I can stop creaking my chair and shit. And there really wasn't any ambiguity about her fate. She goes to jail. That's what it is. But it, it, it still it felt like a, a full-on setup for a series or a franchise of some type. You know, it could have just been time constraints. It could have been HBO. Uh, it could have been anything. But uh, I'll leave you with a little bit of what I think that the uh, ending voiceover could have been for Connie. And I know that uh, voiceover is a trope, but I, uh, you know, I'm not taking it too seriously, right? But uh, if you think it's cool, go ahead. Let me know on Twitter. Let me know what you think. If that's something that we want to pursue further, maybe we can. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just looking to create. So kind of enjoy this, and uh, I hope you like it. Oh, I also wrote the the stuff in the beginning. I didn't say it. I hired people to to say them, and they say things much better than me especially when I'm sick. So listen to them or listen to her say pretty things now. Today wasn't my day. Hopes and hand dashed. But I'll get another shot. I've got the tools I need. Tools to make a man desperate. Desperation is the start of all the worst sins. Coveting and killing. And I can get Eddie Joe to do both especially Lovecraft. Harry hates me right now, and he's quicker than most, but he's more desperate than he thinks, and more valuable than he knows. Sure, he can sniff out a scheme, but when you can convince someone that your angle is what they're looking for, then all you need to do is be on your best behavior. 